Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of How's the Pressure? I am your host, Haley Winter, and today we'll be finishing up our conversation about tennis and golfer's elbow. Let me introduce our second set of panelists who will give their perspective on this condition. First up, we have Joe Muscolino, a soft tissue-oriented chiropractor who has been in the health and wellness field for decades. He has experience teaching massage therapists in the academic setting, and he currently has an impressive library of bodywork-centered videos that are a valuable resource for health and wellness practitioners. You can find a link to those videos on the How's the Pressure website. Our second guest is Irene Lyon, a nervous system expert who will be drawing on her experience in Feldenkrais and somatic experiencing to address this condition through the lens of trauma. Our third guest will be James Earls, who will be focusing on this condition from a movement perspective, specifically how we can include long chain movements and look at the body with a more holistic and whole body approach. Our fourth guest will be Robin Scher, who will help us look at the subject from the craniosacral point of view. And our fifth and final guest is Marjorie Brooke, who will be helping us understand how scar tissue plays a role in this condition. All of my guests today have had decades of experience in the field and are teachers and educators in their specific field of speciality. As usual, there are going to be a lot of different opinions and perspectives that will be shared over the course of this and upcoming episodes. I want to be clear that I'm not trying to put any one opinion over the other. I believe it is my job to bring in experienced people and ask them good questions. We have a lot to get to, so I give you the second panel on tennis and golfer's elbow. All right, now we're going to go ahead and turn to Joe Muscolino to bring a soft tissue-oriented chiropractic perspective to this conversation. Hi, Joe. Thanks for joining us. Hi there, Haley. Thank you very much for having me back here. It's my pleasure. All right. So this episode, we're tackling tennis and golfer's elbow. And I'm curious, what's your perspective or experience working with these conditions? So tennis and golfer's elbow, if I can preface just a little bit and just go back on this. I mean, the fancy name for tennis elbow was always lateral epicondylitis, which implied an inflammation of the lateral epicondyle of the humerus. And the fancy name for golfer's elbow was medial epicondylitis, which implied an inflammation of the medial epicondyle of the humerus. And those names, which even though they sound fancier, are in some ways worse because they seem to place the blame for tennis or golfer's elbow on bone when really the context here is that the periosteum of the bone would not be inflamed if the tendon weren't pulling too hard on the periosteum. And the tendon wouldn't be pulling too hard on the periosteum, most likely, unless the muscle belly or common flexor belly tendon for golfer's elbow, common extensor belly tendon for tennis elbow, weren't over-contracting, being used, overused, misused, abused in Leon Chetow's verbiage. So my point here is that tennis elbow and golfer's elbow, first of all, are not elbow joint problems. They're problems of the flexor tissue for golfer's elbow and the extensor tissue for tennis elbow. And that flexor and extensor tissue is across the wrist joint and across the fingers. And even throwing one more step in here, at a certain point, it became understood that there really wasn't necessarily an inflammation anymore in these conditions once they became chronic. So lateral epicondylitis became lateral epicondylosis, and medial epicondylitis became medial epicondylosis. And osis just means condition of, and it's still, to me, bad verbiage 
because it's still blaming it on the bony aspect. So I really like the newer terms that are coming out, which are uh, lateral elbow tendinopathy and medial elbow tendinopathy, or even better, musculotendinopathy or myofasciopathy or whatever. So I'm really going way into this background, but I think it's important because it goes to the heart of what is the underlying mechanism of tennis and golfer's elbow. And that usually is that first it's a use overuse of the muscles in each case. So in tennis elbow, we've got four muscles that attach into the common extensor. And I say belly tendon, because if you go into cadaver labs, you will certainly see that the bellies blend before the tendons blend. And it's extensor carpi radialis brevis, extensor digitorum, extensor digiti minimi, extensor carpi ulnaris. And those four muscles, their tendons blend and go into the lateral epicondyle of the humerus. There are a couple other muscles that go in the lateral epicondyle of the humerus, but they don't usually blend into that common belly tendon. And on the golfer's medial side, it's going to be the wrist flexor group, flexocarpi radialis, palmaris longus, flexocarpi ulnaris, along with pronator teres, and then in the intermediate level, flexor digitorum superficialis, and there is another muscle or two that goes into that medial epicondyle, but they don't usually blend with that common flexor belly tendon. So that's our orientation on the anatomy structure, which, or, which will inform us how to look at this, because if any of those muscles are being used and overused, then they will constantly pull on their tendon and irritate the tendon. So you'll go from usually really first a tight muscle, spasmed, hypertonic, over-facilitated, locked, uh, you could argue short, short or long muscles. And that's the really the first stage of tennis or golfer's elbow. Uh, tennis being on the posterior side, uh, golfers being on the anterior side. And then from there, if that's a constant pulling, then you'll start to have the tendon being inflamed. And then if that gets past the acute stage and goes to very chronic, you might see it going to not really having so much of, a, of an itis, an inflammation, but now the tissue, the inflammation cycle starts to dampen, dampen down, and uh, you end up with uh, really just uh, an irritation, degeneration of the fascial collagen tendinous tissue. And really only it's been somewhat Chronic, most likely, will it then start to pull on the periosteum where a medical doctor or any other physician oriented that way who doesn't palpate soft tissue might look at a radiograph, an x-ray, and say, oh, I, I see the periosteum lifting away from the bone and it looks swollen. Now we'll name it for the elbow. So my very long preface is that I would look at the myofascial tissue before I would look in any way at the elbow bony elements and I would look very simply at trying to bring down the tonicity of the muscles that are involved so that they relax and they stop pulling so much on the tendon. And I would bring down the tonicity by anything from heat to massage to gentle stretching to moderate stretching, etc. cetera. Um, and then, of course, if the tendon has become inflamed, one could argue ice, although there's a lot of controversy now with ice. And if we're at the tendinosis stage, then we could argue that we should be doing some type of a 
perhaps deeper, more invasive, cross-frictiony kind of gua sha, Graston technique to try and bring in an inflammatory cycle, to bring in fibroblasts, to lay down a new collagen there. And those are probably the, that's an overview from my point of view of the manual therapy techniques that either I would look to employ or I would anticipate another manual therapist of any sort, massage therapist, chiropractor, osteopath, et cetera, Ralph, et cetera, might employ when uh, working with a client who's experiencing tennis or golfer's elbow. And so in your experience, do you find that there have been people who come in either thinking they have tennis elbow or golfer's elbow uh, or present with similar symptoms, but in fact have an entirely different condition? Well, not too often with these conditions compared to other conditions. Certainly very often they might have tennis, golfer's elbow, and some other condition that might play into it that they might be missing uh, in their own self-estimation or perhaps another therapist or physician missed. But tennis and golfer's elbow are pretty straightforward and simple. If, first of all, for no other reason, with differential diagnosis, differential assessment, there aren't a lot of conditions that can really afflict the elbow area because the elbow is a uniaxial hinge joint and it's really stable. So it's pretty rare to have a true elbow joint condition. And as I said a moment ago, tennis elbow and golfer's elbow really aren't conditions of the elbow joint. So when someone is pain around the elbow, uh, it's usually going to be, most often it's going to be those conditions. And they'll usually come right in and point right to either the common extensor belly, tendon, lateral, posterior side by the lateral epicondyle, or the similar for the golfer's elbow. And even though I'm a really big proponent in teaching in my clinical orthopedic manual therapy, the COMPT workshops, how to reason through mechanisms of orthopedic assessment tests. And I've done videos that can be 15, 20 minutes long on reasoning through active range of motion, passive range of motion, manual resistance for sagittal plane and frontal plane, joint actions of the wrist, et cetera, and fingers and all to figure out for sure uh, with confirmation that you know it's tennis or golfer's elbow, frankly, frankly, when it really comes down to it. If you just place your palpating fingers just distal to the lateral and medial, medial epicondyle into that myofascial tissue there and you strum perpendicularly across or just press into it, period. If it's tight, if it's inflamed, if it's irritated, if it's painful, the odds are it's tennis elbow or golfer's elbow, and it's pretty straightforward. And are there any other facts or interesting tidbits you have about this particular condition? Um, well, you know, one thing I will add is because normally we think of, let's go with tennis elbow first. Um, and tennis elbow is a bit more common than golfer's elbow, uh, probably because even though there's only four muscles that come together on that side, the lateral epicondyle, and therefore the tendon width of that common extensor tendon is smaller. So there's more of a concentration of a pulling force. Um, but the other reason why tennis elbow will occur more often is well, yeah, first of all, it's called tennis elbow. Why tennis? Because, well, if someone has a backhand and they, and a lot of people will say, oh, well, if you get tennis elbow from tennis, it means you must have poor form. And I've been a tennis player for decades and that's really not the case. Certainly if you do have bad backhand form and you 
quote-unquote, break the wrist with a backhand, meaning you let the hand at the wrist joint go into extension when you hit the ball with a backhand, which you're really not supposed to do. You're supposed to keep that wrist in a neutral posture. Certainly, if you do extend the hand at the wrist, that will further load the extensor bellies, muscles, tendons that go to the lateral epicondyle. But you could have perfect form and you could play against someone maybe first thing in the springtime when you haven't played for a while and you're deconditioned and just the force of the ball hitting the racket head far away from the axis of motion, which is where you're holding the racket handle, that leverage force will really want to make your hand collapse into flexion. So you're really going to have to isometrically engage to stabilize the wrist joint to keep it from flexing. And that isometric engagement engagement of wrist extensors is going to put a tremendous load on the common extensor belly, muscle, belly, tendons there. So, and if you hit with someone who's hitting harder than you're used to, you're not conditioned for that. My, my point here, I really want to make two points. One is that you can have perfect form in tennis, but still end up with tennis elbow from hitting backhands if you're not ready for the circumstance of how you're hitting. And the other thing is that tennis elbow doesn't just come by overusing the wrist extensors. It also comes by overuse of finger flexors. Because let's take, for example, well, both of them, the flexor digitorum superficialis and the flexor digitorum profundus. They come from the medial side. One crosses the elbow, the other one doesn't, but they cross on the anterior side of the wrist. And that means that when they go to flex the fingers at the metacarpophalangeal interphalangeal joints, they also cross the wrist anteriorly. They should make the hand flex at the wrist joint. But you don't make the hand flex at the wrist joint when you're gripping something uh, to, with contracting those muscles to grip anything from a tennis racket to a doorknob to a quart of milk to a steering wheel to a pen. So what you have to do is stop the hand from flexing at the wrist joint, which means you need to stabilize the wrist joint, which means you need to do it by isometric contraction of the wrist extensors. My point here is that overuse of finger flexors, overuse of gripping things, which seems to have nothing to do with extensors of the hand at the wrist, is another major factor toward tennis elbow. And now, by the way, if you put that back into doing a backhand, you are gripping the racket with finger flexor muscles while you are either isometrically or perhaps concentrically extending the hand at the wrist. So that's a double whammy. But there are a lot of people who get tennis elbow who never pick up a tennis racket in their entire life, and it comes from gripping too much, whether they grip their steering wheel too hard because they have a long commute going into work or they're constantly moving items, let's say uh, scanning at a, a grocery store, a cashier, clerk, or anyone that is holding gripping objects. So my concern here would be that when you are giving someone self-care advice for the postures and movement activities that could be offensive, that could be causing this, uh, because even if you get someone well, if they keep doing the same offensive activities, um, they will aggravate the condition again. So we need to talk to them about, for tennis elbow, not just wrist extension, or but also gripping with the fingers, and certainly gripping with the fingers and flexing the hand at the wrist to scoff his elbow. 
Yeah. Well, it, it it just speaks to your point. It feels like you know you someone could have perfect form, but if they're gripping the racket in between plays or in between times they strike the ball too much, that could itself inflame the tendon, and you could have someone who wouldn't normally get it would because they're you know they're they have good form. They would they would naturally get it because they're overusing the just by gripping too hard. And I even, you know, I hate to go too crazy with this, but there was a study that showed that shoulder impingement syndrome. So we're talking about supraspinatus distal tendon, uh, subacromial subdeltoid bursa, long head of biceps brachii, that the predisposition for that increases when you use a pen that is less smaller in diameter. So a narrower pen and a smooth surface because you have to grip harder. And when you grip harder, you're certainly gripping harder with finger flexors, which means you're also going to be isometrically gripping harder with wrist extensors, but you're also stabilizing up at your shoulder joint. So to me, I mean, people that get these very expensive, you know, pens that are very sleek and smooth and made of fancy stone or woods and all, I'm like, you know, give me a good old-fashioned, well, not really an old, old-fashioned, a newer old-fashioned pen that's wider with a rubber grip at the bottom. So you don't have to grip as hard. And I would tell anybody in their life for any upper extremity problem, when you grip any object, steering wheel, pen, whatever it is, are you holding it with the minimum force necessary? Are you relaxed while you're holding it? Or is it a death grip? And that's really going to lead into a problem for so many areas from carpal tunnel to, to tennis or golfer's elbow up to shoulder joint problems, up to stabilizing your shoulder girdle and up into the shoulder girdle and neck. So, um, yeah, I think sometimes we have to broaden out our kinematic effects of the, the kinematic chain of what's going on. And are there any other treatment options that you've heard of for either tennis or golfer's elbow? Yes. You know, um, first I'm going to say that they very often break it into that lateral or medial epicondylitis, epicondylosis. They make it sound like it's a magical, like it's six months it goes from acute to chronic and suddenly a switch is flipped in it. And you suddenly have to switch from icing to deep transverse frictiony kind of work. And really there's a transition between these stages and you can have both the inflammation and the degeneration, but it does gradually transition over toward less and less inflammation, more and more degeneration. And when that degeneration really is the hallmark of it, I have to say that I've become a very, very big fan of sending my patients, instead of me doing deep crossword, and I like deep work, but I really don't like doing the kind of deep work that sometimes is called upon for theoretically reigniting that inflammatory cycle and all that is I like to send people over for PRP injections, platelet-rich plasma injections. There's no artificial side effect. They draw out your blood, they spin it down, they take your platelets, they put them back in the plasma, and then they inject it back into that area. And really, it's just a concentrated chemotaxis, positive chemotaxis, drawing in um, all the elements that would help to heal tissue, primarily fibroblasts. And they've really gotten it down nicely where a few years ago, it would, it would hurt like hell because there'd be a lot of inflammation in there. And, um, but you only had it hurt like 
know, once and it would probably do the effect of about 10 manual therapy visits. But nowadays they've gotten it where they've refined it down, um, where really there's very little strong inflammatory cycle. And really, it's just a really good fibroblastic attraction into the area. And I've seen patients, and I myself have had PRP injections. So I'm not trying to denigrate our manual therapy techniques. And granted, one PRP injection probably cost about as much as five to 10 manual therapy sessions. But I'm a really big fan, if that is in the area of the client, to be able to think about going in and having a PRP injection. Um, I'm not talking about cortisone. I'm not talking about artificial drugs. I'm talking about using the body's natural elements to reignite and stimulate a healing process. All right. Thank you so much for giving your thoughts on this condition. Uh, if you listeners are interested in learning more about Joe's work and perspective, you can find him at learnmuscles.com. And if you go to How's the Pressure website, you'll find a link for a free month to his video subscription service, and you'll get access to over a 1,000 continuing education video lessons for manual therapists like you. So thank you so much, Joe. Thank you so much, Hallie. My pleasure. All right, so now we're going to turn to Irene Lyon, who's a nervous system expert, and she's going to provide us some context for how trauma plays into this condition. Thanks for joining us, Irene. Hey there, Haley. Thanks for having me. All right, let's talk about tennis and golfer's elbow. Sure. So if I put my trauma hat on, which I will for tennis and golfer's elbow, I can put my movement hat on, but I'm going to, I'm going to tell a story um, and the story is of a, a client of mine um, who had a history of um, a little bit of sexual assault, being very kind of down on herself and experienced um, really debilitating um, joint pain. We could say it was tennis elbow and that, but it was, it was also within the wrist, within the hand. It was that whole kind of arm system. So I kind of like to see the whole system there. And she was getting really worried because it was painful to write. And I remember in university back in the days when we had notes and didn't have computers, you know, you'd be writing, writing, writing for like five to six hours a day, taking notes. And I remember feeling what was like golfers or tennis elbow and there was inflammation and all of that. That was like repetitive strain. And then when I stopped, it went away. If I think about this one client it wasn't because of repetitive strain. There was something deep within the somatic system that was causing those muscles around that area and those tendons to be inflamed and very sore. And I won't remember the details specifically right now, but we were working together, working on the trauma responses, learning the education. The education is so important when it comes to working at that somatic trauma level with people because our brains want to look for why something is happening. Other mammals don't do that. Human animals are unique because of our higher brain structure. And we're, we are, we're so smart and we're so creative and we can invent all these things. And so we look for that meaning. And so she was learning with me and learning about her nervous system and getting like the deep, deep knowledge and education on board while also being very good at noticing feelings, sensations, somatic triggers as they were coming up. And what started to 
unfold as we were actually doing some very, we call it joint work in the somatic practice and somatic experiencing world where you're literally, and you can do this on yourself, but the practitioner might just hold the elbow joint or they might just hold the shoulder joint. And it's not about manipulating or putting pressure. It's just containing and feeling and bringing intention and focus and really just saying to the joint, we're here. We're not doing anything to you. It's safe. You wouldn't say this to the person. It's your intention. This is intention is a very powerful instrument with somatic trauma work because that, that storage, that um, strain isn't in the cognitive, it's in the somatic. So when you're working with this tissue, it has to be very like Obi-Wan Kenobi, very Yoda, right? Like the power is there, you know, use your force. Like that's what you have to do when you're doing this deeper work because the cognitive won't make sense. And so you're there, you're, she was holding, she was holding her joint, doing self-touch work through my guidance, through what I teach. And all of a sudden, just this, this release of tears and anger because of this, you know, uh, sexual attack where she was probably not able to break free, it started to come out. And then the gratitude and the compassion for, I really couldn't break free. It was, I was helpless. And if I had tried, I would have been hurt more. So there was like this whole story that unfolded out of these joints with, I know you mentioned the elbow, but it was the whole arm structure, shoulder, joint, wrist. And even if we think about the fingers, there are so many joints within the, within the phalanges and the carpals and all of that and the metacarpals. So it was just like all of the story and the tension was making it such that she had inflammation in her elbows and she couldn't write, right? She worked on this and then the next day she was at some kind of conference where she had to write and journal and without even realizing it, there was no more pain. It was gone. You know, no IB, no rest, no ice, no manipulate. It was just being with the somatic sense and giving safe space to those joint areas. Um, and this is, you know, just to remind everyone, this is from a perspective of she wasn't doing anything repetitively to strain that. Right. I mean, I think that's another like important piece to take from this is that be, sometimes it can feel a little confusing on how to distinguish between uh, yeah. a physiological condition that is treatable, that is disconnected from trauma versus one that isn't. And I guess in this particular area, it's like, oh, well, also having ancillary, um, ancillary unexplained uh, tension or yeah. discomfort that doesn't necessarily fit the paradigm of the particular condition may lead you to at least explore the option of, of trauma being connected to it. Definitely. And, you know, as I kind of land into what you're just saying there, there's also this weird thing that our human bodies, we're just starting to figure this out. It's, it's, you could call it cosmic, but people will, I have seen end up with an accident like let's say they do get tennis elbow from playing too much tennis, right? But then they stop playing tennis, but it's still there. And we have a weird way of putting ourselves into situations and environments unconsciously often to try to resolve an old traumatic experience that's still in the system. 
So someone might go on vacation and go crazy playing tennis and then they stop and they come home and their elbow is still sore and inflamed. But what it's actually given them is a spark, a somatic spark, if we want to call it, to that broken elbow they had or that broken wrist they had when they were a kid where they fell off their bike and nobody was there to help them and they felt alone and scared. And it can, tri it can like in a positive way trigger a memory that is still trapped in the system. And I've seen people get into car accidents over and over and over again as a way for the body to like try to resolve that first car accident they had when they were like 16 and maybe they were drunk driving or something like that. And it's like, it's not because they're careless drivers. There's like a blind spot within their body that's looking to resolve that first trauma. And so sometimes we can have these injuries that, that we think are just totally isolated. But if we drop a level deeper and see it from more of a like holographic, everything is connected point of view, we can start to really unpiece old stuff that we thought we didn't even have. All right. Thank you so much, Irene. You're welcome. So that was Irene Lyon. You can find out more about her and her work at their website, which is irenelyon.com. So now I'm going to bring in James Earls, who will give us his thoughts from the perspective of a massage therapist with a focus on combining movement and manual therapy. Welcome, James. Hi, Haley. Well, it's a pleasure to be back. Thank you very much for the invitation. So let's talk about tennis and golfer's elbow. Cool. Um, well, for, for me, for both of them, um, it's kind of going back to looking at their mechanics. So what are they doing? How are they doing it? Or are they doing it too much? Um, you know, so in terms of mechanics, unless you're a kind of golf pro or tennis pro, probably we don't have that much to add. Um, but certainly making sure that they've checked in with whoever they're working with if they, you know, or to, to, to get a trainer if they haven't already. Um, and in terms of the, the treatment, local treatment, for me, it's all the, the usual stripping through, making sure that the trigger points are dealt with using soft tissue or fascial release type techniques. Um, the, the main thing I would probably add in would be uh, provided that they're not just using their forearm for, the, for whatever it is that, that they're, they're doing, whatever um, sport, whether it be tennis, golf, or, or anything else, because it's not just restricted to tennis and golf, um, is making sure, are they, are they doing it from their shoulder or are they doing it with their whole body? So I've got, okay, so one, let me see what you're doing. Can I kind of get an idea? Is it purely a wrist action? It's like, well, if it is, can we get that coming up to your shoulder? And if you're getting it from the shoulder, can we also get it into the thoracics? I want as much tissue involved with the, the movement as possible in order to dissipate stress. Because um, obviously they're putting too much stress on locally and that's the, the cause of the problem. So can I, get, can I get their shoulder involved? Can I get the thoracics moving? Can I get their hips moving? You know, and it doesn't all come back to, but you know, quite often it does. Can I can I even get their feet um, pronating, supinating in response to that that stroke? Um, anything that's going to help um, disperse the, the the stress and also hopefully give them perhaps more power in the stroke if they are playing golf or um, playing tennis. Um, the most common is probably, especially with the um, uh, lateral elbow. Uh, discomfort is making sure they're free right up into the neck as well. So 
you know, in Tom Myers's the Anatomy Twins, the um, superficial back arm line, for example, it comes down from trapezius into the deltoid, the lateral intramuscular septum that comes down in, onto the lateral epicondyle and into the um, wrist finger extensors. So there is there's quite a bit of literature that would tie up um, cervical mobility with um, lateral wrist, uh, sorry, lateral elbow um, pain discomfort. So making sure that that line is clear and it's not just the the myofascia of that line, but making sure that all of the joints that are covered by that line are doing what they should. So making sure that you've got cervical mobility. Um, for me, one of the um, important aspects then would be. You know, to, to tie in with that would be looking at middle and posterior scalenes, um, which can quite often be locking down those lower cervical um, vertebrae. Um, and just maybe as a, you know, so I, I don't know if I have anything particularly different to, to add than many of your other presenters in terms of locals, but if I were to add something quite different, I would be uh, to assess the, local, the uh, medial posterior scalenes from a top-down direction so most neck cervical mobility tests would be taking the head side to side, but a lot of that, a lot of times, it can look as if you have good cervical mobility, but it's actually from C three above. So if we get the head to move over the thorax, if the if the middle and posterior scalenes are tight then we get hyper, relative hypermobility through the suboccipital, so from, let's say, C3 to the, to the occiput. And that can actually look like an appropriate mobility, but it can be too much above and not enough below. So quite often, and it's particularly appropriate for golfers, I try to get the thorax to move under the neck. So to have clients take a spot and then using an arm swing or the pelvis swinging side to side, then trying to get some kind of sense of what happens when they take the thorax away from the head. And so this is a kind of a, a bottom-up driven assessment. So it's the rib cage tilting away from C3 rather than the head tilting away from C3. And that, that's, a, for me, a, a more appropriate assessment for the middle and posterior scalings, which, especially if you're looking and thinking about golf and, and tennis, that's quite a common um, mechanism or dynamic within the, within the stroke. So the, the, the thorax is tilting away from the ball. So I like to add that in. And it's also then thinking about the, the techniques, if um, if we're thinking of a table technique for scalenes, quite often they're cued. You would cup the occiput and take the occiput away from the upper thorax or away from the shoulder. But actually, well, that could be taking the movement into the that C3 through occiput um, area and not necessarily down into the scalene. So I like to cup around C3 as well as the occiput and make sure I'm taking C3 away from the upper ribs. Right, so that you make sure that you're lengthening uh, the lower cervical, you're, you're, you're opening up this lower cervical vertebrae and perhaps lengthening those posterior scalenes. Yes, okay. yep. And so that, that's going to give much more, and much, hopefully a much more even cervical um, flexibility, both in lateral flexion and also in, in rotation. Awesome. Thank you so much, James. You're welcome. Thank you. So if you want to learn more about James and his work, you can find out at www.borntowalk.com
Now we're going to bring in Robin Scher, who's going to talk to us from the perspective of cranial sacral therapy. Thanks for joining us, Robin. Glad to be here, Haley. So tell me about working with people who are suffering from tennis or golfer's elbow. Another thing I see a lot of, you'd think with a, you know, something that seems so orthopedic in nature that folks would not end up on my table, right? They'd be in PT, maybe they'd need some surgery, they'd get some deep tissue work and it would resolve. And yet, I see a lot of people with this diagnosis. Um, once again, who diagnosed you with this? What does it mean to you? Uh, because I, I took a quick look actually before we talked uh, I typed in, you know, tennis elbow, and I looked at the Mayo Clinic and said, can be self-diagnosed. And I thought, oh, okay, well, then what does, what does this mean, right? Does it really mean that there's a problem with the flexor tendons and where they attach or the extensor tendons? Or does it simply mean pain in this area or pain with certain movements? Hmm. One, one thing that I have referred folks out for is when people come in and they're diagnosed with, I've had this with tennis elbow and golfer's elbow, and I'm aware that their nerves just are not gliding well in the tissue. It's not inflammation, some, you know, it's not like acute inflammation. Something else is happening in the nerves. And folks, I've sent folks to you know, physicians who I trust and they've had imaging done um, at, or nerve testing done and found that they had a crush syndrome or a nerve impingement. Thank goodness these, well, one folk, one person I can think of went through a ton of really intense physical therapy, got in there, you know, their practitioner really got in there, broke up adhesions. This person had a crush injury. Think about what was happening to their arm, getting all this aggressive PT. Uh, caused a lot of trouble. So I'd like us all to ask, where did this diagnosis come from? What exactly are your symptoms? And also, when folks don't get better, we, we have to not double down on what we're doing, which is what happened to this particular client. person just doubled down, went in deeper, went in harder. Things got worse, and the PT kept doubling down. Um, person ended up with some permanent nerve damage. Mm -hmm. And now I am working with this client around nerve pain, right? And we, I don't know how long we'll be working. I'm hoping it won't be, you know, I, I never hope for a client to become long-term in craniosacral therapy. I'm always wanting folks to get out and into their lives. Uh, and so far it's been, it's been long-term. A lot of it is finding positioning that's not painful, finding movement that's not painful, and moving out from there. Right. In addition to my whole body assessment, feeling what moves and what doesn't in the craniosacral rhythm, being able to feel into inflammation. Is it chronic or is it acute? How can I you know, help this move along if, it, if, if there's edema? It's also finding, finding where there is no pain or there is reduced pain and working with my client so that they recognize it too. And that's something that they can then bring into their life. Um, so many of my clients with this kind of c diagnosis and conditions like this where movement causes pain simply remove movement from their lives. Or they're looking for the right way to do a movement. 
uh, just like there's a right way to sit in a chair, and I have an issue with that because I think um, an alert, aware, uh, alive body goes through a ton of different postures in a given, you know, five-minute period, and ideally we're adapting to conditions on the ground at all times. So for clients with a condition like this, their condition on the ground is pain with certain movement. The question might be is, what movement can you do without pain? How much can you lift or how much can you curl your wrist, right, which would get to those flexor tendons, without pain? How much weight can you have on that, not in an exercise way, but in a daily life way? Are you able to brush your teeth? You know, let's move from there. Oh, brushing your teeth doesn't hurt now? What else can we do to, to track that sensation, to track not only what's getting better, um, but to... Hmm, to create that sense of curiosity in my client because I find that conditions improve for clients when they're curious and engaged. And it sounds like you're helping them parse out the sensations. It feels like in, 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 in some people who come in with this condition or with conditions tend to group sensation and pain all together and you're helping them kind of uh, spread out the different sensations and look at them individually to help identify what is actually the thing that you're not wanting to occur. And so you can appreciate more other sensations. And just by doing that, your life gets a little bit better. I love that you're saying this. And thank you for saying it more clearly than I was saying it. It brings to mind one of the things that's really important in my practice is that um, what folks will call therapeutic presence, the fact that I can be grounded and calm no matter what's going on for my client. So for many of us, if, if we take, take, a cl take an arm in a certain direction and the client says, oh, that hurts, or there's anticipation of pain, we'll just lose our feet right there. We'll go right along with them, right? And um, that contributes to our client's pain because we're no longer centered and grounded and calm. Whereas if I can, and I, I get this from uh, the work I've done learning with Suzanne Skurlock and her Healing from the Core work, if I can stay very grounded, very present, aware of my bones, aware of my own body and its comfort, I just naturally then radiate that comfort out. Thank you, Robin. Thanks a lot, Haley. That was Robin Share, and you can learn more about her through her website at livinginthebody.net. And if you want to learn more about craniosacral therapy in general or its trainings, you can visit upledger.com. So now I'm going to bring in Marjorie Brook, who will give us her thoughts as an expert in scar tissue. Welcome, Marjorie. Hi, Haley. Thanks for having me. So let's talk about tennis and golfer's elbow. Okay, so we have some repetitive strain injuries, which basically are causing uh, inflammation and tendon uh, breakdown. So from the repetitive use, right, the scar tissue builds up and ties down the tissue that needs to move freely. Um, again, remember, uh, the scar tissue is going to build up in the muscle that's being repetitively used over and over again in the same manner. The muscles are going to become shorter and weaker. Tension on the tendons causes tendonitis. Um, nerves can be trapped within multiple places. It can be trapped within the tissue, the scar tissue. It can get trapped by knotted up muscles with trigger points. It can get trapped 
uh, in between the bones from the pole, it can slip as everything's functioning out of alignment, okay? And then um, all of these problems can be uh, cause reduced range of motion, loss of strength and pain, as well as tingling, numbness, weakness, all these symptoms that we hear, you know, and the scars, the scar tissues can form uh, two different ways. First, if the muscle or the tendon, like I said, is torn or crushed, uh, the body creates the scar tissue to glue the pieces together. It's the healing process. It's supposed to be done that way. Unfortunately, because we're usually dealing with fanatics, uh, golfers, tennis, it's the same thing with any type of uh, joint issue, the, they're not going to stop <laughs> playing and allow themselves to heal. They're going to throw the magnets on. They're going to throw the brace on, which is the brace is e uh, even worse, um, and continue to play. So the body will continue to get uh, irritated and continue to get inflammation and then continue to lay down more adhesions and scar tissue to try to keep everything, uh, as I said, glued together. Okay. The second and more common way for the scar tissue to form uh, is by soft tissue in the body that's not receiving enough oxygen, i.e. hypoxia. If you have restricted range of motion and a lot of scar tissue and adhesions, you're not getting the proper blood and lymphatic, lymphatic flow through the area. When you don't get enough blood flow through an area, you're not getting oxygen, creating a hypoxic and, by the way, very acidic. Uh, the pH balance is totally off when you're in a hypoxic area, okay? And it's more common than most people would think, right? Poor posture, athletic pursuits, repetitive use, sustained pressures, like in sitting all day, they all increase muscle tension and result in hypoxic conditions. So it's not just tennis and golfer's elbow. It's pretty much throughout the body. You know, uh, when the muscle tension is increased, blood supply to the area is reduced and a healthy blood flow is, you know, so important because it carries all of the oxygens to, oxygen to the muscle and reduces blood flow uh, by, um, sorry, a reduced blood flow means less oxygen and again, the hypoxic state. That's how it works, all right? Um, now, here's the other thing about hy hypoxia. It leads to free radical accumulation in the muscles and unfortunately, when you have free radicals, they attract cells that produce scar tissue. Okay, these cells begin laying down scar tissue, and over time, scar tissue begins affecting surrounding muscles, tendons, ligaments, fascia, nerves, everything. So, and while the scar tissue, as I say, can, can uh, occur anywhere, um, elbow scar tissue can lead to the unique symptoms such as uh, ulnar neuritis, uh, tennis elbow, golfer's elbow, and uh, another symptom. And the scar tissue is the formation of the trigger points that we mentioned that are also a problem and faster degenerative changes to the surrounding bone. Okay. We don't consider that the bone can be altered by the constant lack of oxygen, nutrition, and then the constant pull and misuse, misalignment on the bone. We can end up having all kinds of problems uh, with supplications and joint alter and uh, bone alteration. So how long does it take? That that seems like something that's very serious and would take a long time of being in a hypoxic condition for that to occur. What is what is for, the time for the bone that? alteration? For the bone alteration? Yes. Or just hypoxia itself? No, no, the bone alteration. Yeah, that is. That's someone who's that takes a while. That's someone who just keeps going at it and doesn't get any relief and doesn't give the the any any type of break. But it also can happen. You can see the same thing as if you're talking about any other joint. You know, the elbow, which is a very mobile joint that we use all the time, uh, is more prone and you get more injuries. You hear, um, usually it's, it's knees and elbows. That's what you hear about the most when it comes to athletes and they don't stop. So it, over a length of time, they're going to end up with uh, 
degenerating the bone or altering the bone or the bone contouring to the pressure that they keep it under. And do you have an estimate of uh, approximately how long it takes for that process to begin? I really don't because it depends on the metabolism and how much they're abusing the area uh, and the way they're doing it and what means they're taking as they're going. Some people won't do anything. They'll just keep hanging through the pain and keep going till they just basically explode everything. Others go for therapy, but don't give themselves a break or get the appropriate therapy because a lot of times, again, we go back to the icing and the stretching and though there are, and people will go for that one, the, the trigger points, but they won't look at it as the, the inflammation being the cause that we have to flush the area and we have to get the, the, the tissues mobile working the way they were designed to work. And if we've laid down adhesions and scar tissue, we have to start to work the scar tissue and the adhesions first slowly, because again, it's a joint and with a joint, you always have to test as you go that you don't destabilize the joint. Like how much of that tendon has been so deteriorated that it now needs the adhesions to stay on, or we might be talking surgery. Uh, a while back, you mentioned that braces would be worse or sometimes worse mm-hmm. uh, than the injury itself or worse than other treatments. Can you explain uh, your thought process behind that? Uh, I am not for, I am very much against bracing for, for the elbows and for the wrists and all that, because it immobilizes. We are mobile. Everything is based in our system through mobility, right? Uh, our circulation, whether it be the blood supply or the lymphatic is all based on muscle contraction and relaxation, right? That's how everything moves through the body. So we're already talking about an area that is starving for oxygen and nutrition, And then we're talking about immobilizing it, restricting it, and not allowing it to move. Without that movement, the inflammation is just going to pull uh, pull up and get worse, causing more adhesions to come in. And also, all of the muscles in the area, instead of learning, they're already contracting from the abuse. So they're going to get more uh, atrophic, atrophy a little more, and shorten even more, and get weaker, weaker even more. Right. The whole thing about golfers and, ten- and, and tennis elbow is that the, the tendons have become weak and short and we need to lengthen. And you're only going to be able to lengthen and strengthen through mobilization. Right? And a lot of people will use the brace as a crutch and they won't ever take it off. Like they'll you overuse it, overwear it. And that's a problem. And when we talk about brace, we're talking about a brace that, that holds their arm in a certain position. That's a little different than like the the band that goes across the, the band that goes, yeah, the, I'm sorry. The band that goes across is pinning down the muscle so that it's not pulling or aggravating the nerve. Um, or, I mean, some will wear it to keep, to try to keep the bones in alignment, but again, that's a crutch. <laughs> you're not retraining. You're not, if you have to wear that band in order to play, you need to take a break from playing. You need to work and we we give the the muscles a chance to re, to uh, rebuild, restore, and uh, recoup recoup from all the abuse. And or you have to find out what it is you're doing when you're playing that caused it in the first place. Was it just is your swing off because it's either too much playing or you're playing incorrectly? Um, golfers especially are constantly working on their swing. Right. And they're, you know, so at least when they're constantly working on their swing, they're trying different positions. Tennis people are not changing their position. They're changing their stamina and the ankles, but the the elbow is staying. And it's just, it's, it's, it's too much. And they just won't give it a break. 
All right. Thank you so much, Marjorie. Thank you. If you want to learn more about Marjorie and her work, you can learn more at marjoriebrookseminars.com. So in past episodes, I've given a little summary after each episode regarding my thoughts and takeaways, but I'm going to switch to do my summary only at the end of part two of the condition. That way I can speak to the content and context of the condition as a whole, rather than just the few voices that are on each specific episode. So for Tennis and Golfer's Elbow as a whole, it was really good to hear the separation between these two conditions. Tennis Elbow being lateral epicondylitis, the forearm extensors, and Golfer's Elbow being medial epicondylitis, those forearm flexors. Uh, Many of the guests reiterated the idea that we're trying to move away from describing this as tendinitis and more towards tendinosis, uh, or more specifically, as Joe Muscolino points it, uh, tendinopathy. So describing it as a disruption or of the integrity or a degrading of the collagen of the tissue in the tendon. And if treating it as tendinosis, the most effective techniques are cross-fiber friction and eccentric exercises. The key is that the tendon has actually been overused and is starting to break down, and it needs rest and is very controlled strengthening to help build it back up and to return that integrity to the tissue. On that note, it also appears that a lot of the actively engaged work that we do, meaning the manual work when our client engages their tissue, has a large neurological effect as well as physiological effect. It's also worth noting that the tendon isn't getting overused on its own. It requires the repetitive overuse of the muscles of either the flexors or the extensors of the forearm to stress that tendon. So it's a good reminder that none of this happens in a vacuum, and we should all clearly remember to pay attention to the muscles that are pulling on these various tendons when developing a treatment plan. It's also good to hear about some of our guests' successes using kinesiology tape uh, for this condition, as it helps with the tension load that the the tendons deal with, and it provides a different type of sensation with movement, which can be very helpful for someone dealing with chronic pain in the elbow region. And the last thing is that it was really interesting to hear about how much there wasn't as much misdiagnosis of this condition as there are with other conditions that we have covered in the past. It's not that we should be flippant with our assessment of any client presenting uh, with symptoms that relate to this condition, but it was good to finally hear us come across a condition that isn't as easily mistaken as other ones. So that's it for my my wrap-up, and I I really hope you enjoyed this episode. I'll be back in two weeks with our episode on Carpal Tunnel. Well, that's a wrap for this episode. A big thank you to all of my experienced and esteemed panelists. I continue to be honored that they let me poke and prod their minds on these subjects. It wouldn't be possible without them. Please do rate us on iTunes or through whichever podcast app that you listen to us, and feel free to visit us on Facebook and suggest new topics for me to cover in future episodes. Until then, be well. Be well.